Hello and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, the show that explores how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm Bentley Kaplan, your host for this episode. And on today's show, we're going to get into an intriguing mining venture in the scenic Upper Rhine Valley to see if it might be a very big piece of the electric vehicle revolution. And then we'll make things a little cozier by looking at the UK's latest green building standards for homes and what that means for home builders and their investors. Thanks for sticking around. Let's do this. If my colleagues' complaints or anything to go by, it's been a sticky European summer. For many tourists, both local and international, the summer holiday would have meant a visit to the Upper Rhine Valley, which includes places like Germany's Black Forest, France's Alsace, and the Swiss city of Basel. But history and culture and good food aside, there's another reason to be interested in the Upper Rhine Valley, or more specifically, what's sitting underneath the Upper Rhine Valley. A unique combination of lithium, which is dissolved in brine, and geothermal energy. For Vulcan Energy Resources, an Australian mining company, this particular geothermal brine is the bee's knees. And there are a couple of reasons for this, but first and foremost, it's because this geothermal brine contains a lot of lithium. And lithium is fast becoming one of the keystones of a low-carbon future, especially for the transport sector. To take you back to elementary chemistry, lithium is a relatively low-density metal that can hold a lot of energy for its mass, something that has made it a key component in the rechargeable batteries that power electric vehicles. And as demand for electric vehicles is taking off, so too is the interest in where key ingredients will come from. To tell me more about lithium mining and Vulcan energy, I've got Kuldi Byadov, coming to us fresh out of MSCI's Sydney office for his debut on the show. Kuldeep started me off with basic principles. How mining companies get to lithium in the first place, and then he explained how Vulcan Energy is proposing a novel approach, one they say will provide zero-carbon lithium. Lithium is currently extracted via two techniques, which are hard rock mining and brine evaporation. Hard rock mining, this technique is a very carbon intensive and mostly used in Australia and North America. However, more than 50% of lithium resources, they are found in South America's lithium triangle, which is Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile. So in this part of the world, the most prevalent technique is brine evaporation. Even though this technique is quite simple and cheap, this is hugely water intensive and it conflicts with the local communities. So the promise of zero carbon lithium, this thesis is kind of based on the concept of geothermal brines. You can think of basically hot salty water, which can provide geothermal energy when it is pumped to the surface. And in addition, the brine fluids can also be used to extract lithium. The important aspect of this technique is that there have to be right conditions for it. A high temperature, high brine flow, and also a high concentration of lithium, which is at this point of time only found in two regions. One is the Salton Sea region of South California. And another is Upper Rhine of Germany. So Kuldeep has a solid poker voice. But what he's talking about here should be prickling the ears of anyone interested in the supply chains of electric vehicles. If you're not one of those people, think of it this way. If you want to get your hands on lithium, a key component in EV batteries, you've traditionally had two choices. One, use fossil fuels to roast it out of hard rock. Or two, suck it out of underground brine, leave it in huge puddles that ultimately evaporate, and then scrape up the lithium that's left behind. In blunt terms, to get a ton of lithium, you're either going to need to emit 15 tons of carbon dioxide or use up to 500,000 gallons of water. 
Either option might make you wince. But Vulcan Energy is proposing a new option. Tapping geothermal energy to extract lithium from underground brine and then returning that brine back underground, lithiumless, if that is even a word. And the end product is what the company is calling zero carbon lithium. A mining process that taps geothermal energy won't need to emit carbon dioxide. And not only that, this process would drastically reduce water loss compared with the mining operations in South America's lithium triangle. And limiting water loss might be strategically important if the company wants to avoid the types of conflicts with communities that lithium miners have seen in Chile, Argentina and Bolivia. But Vulcan's zero carbon lithium is not only about the extraction method, but also about the quantity of lithium in the mix. Vulcan Energy says it's looking at extracting 15,000 tons of lithium hydroxide per year at two sites by 2024, and is then hoping to bring in three more sites from 2025, for a total output of 40,000 tons per year. In total, geologists estimate that the Upper Rhine Valley contains enough lithium for more than 400 million electric cars. So in a Venn diagram of overlapping interests, Vulcan Energy is proposing an idea that might land right in the middle of everything. It helps Vulcan Energy to solve two big problems. And one of them is there's an energy crisis going on in Europe and there's a duality for this project. They are they're providing geothermal energy and they're also providing lithium, which is underpinned by European Union's world-leading commitment towards electrifying their, their transport system and also move towards self-sufficiency in lithium production. So these two big problems are currently at the heart of EU policy as well. Once they are able to scale up the production of zero carbon lithium, if successful, obviously, there are a lot of challenges ahead still because it's a novel technology. It is going to attract a premium to the price. Despite Vulcan is in its early stages, it has already signed various offtake agreements with companies like Volkswagen, Umicore, and most recently with Stellantis by accepting a $75 million of investment. They also estimate the cost per ton for lithium is estimated to be 50% lower than the existing method. So things are sounding pretty good right now, aren't they? We've got a theoretically huge source of lithium that you can extract without burning fossil fuels or consuming vast quantities of water. For car makers looking to decarbonize their supply chains, particularly those with operations in Europe, like VW and Stellantis, this is hitting a pretty sweet spot. And even for policymakers in the EU, this provides the intriguing prospect of large quantities of locally produced lithium, a box that has not yet been ticked. But for all the starry upside, there is one key constraint for Vulcan Energies, a geographical one. As Kuldeep mentioned at the start of the segment, the geothermal brine that offers a source of low carbon lithium has only been found in California's Salton Sea and the Upper Rhine Valley in Germany. So any obstacles, however localized, would leave the company with very little wiggle room. And currently, one of these potential obstacles is the buy-in and permission of local residents and authorities. And this actually wouldn't be the first time that the Upper Rhine Valley has had to consider the pros and cons of mining. In 2007, geothermal drilling in Stauffen caused underground layers of gypsum to swell, pushing up and damaging houses. And in 2009, a geothermal energy project being run by Geox, a German energy company, caused an earthquake in Landau following deep drilling activity. Both sites were in or adjacent to the Upper Rhine Valley. So as Kuldeep tells it, navigating this project opposition might be a new prospect for Vulcan Energy, a company that only went public in 2018. But it's something that the mining industry more broadly will be quite familiar with. 
it happens with most energy development projects. And the reason for that is because they are sometimes invasive by nature and anything related to mining and geothermal energy attracts the attention of communities. Especially this is something very new. So try and explain it to the communities and also to the authorities that uh, what this project entails and what are the environmental effects and what are the societal effects is not a straightforward task. What Vulcan has been doing is establish some website and programs to resolve these issues. They recently got approval from eight local councils to conduct their 3D seismic surveys in, in those areas, which shows that there is, is a growing support for this project. Right, so Vulcan has taken some steps towards building local support for its project. And building the support can be critical. Mining companies that find themselves on the wrong side of local opposition can see a swift and sudden end to their best laid plans. In just May this year, a proposed lithium mine in Jadar, Serbia, run by Rio Tinto, sought permissions revoked by the government following environmental protests. And the very nature of mining, not just lithium but other metals too, makes this risk of community opposition a constant reality for the industry. In our ESG ratings model, we look at this risk through the community relations key issue. In part, we look at how well positioned a company might be to limit local opposition or encourage community support for its projects. In our analysis of Vulcan Energy in April this year, we did not pick up any industry-leading practices on things like formal grievance channels, community impact assessments, and local hiring and procurement programs. And this may be because, as a new company, Vulcan has not publicly disclosed the efforts that it is making. Or maybe the company is still finding the best way to run its community engagement programs. Either way, with so many of its eggs in one basket, the company may see growing investor interest in its efforts and successes to garner local support. Our next segment is going to take us in a slightly different direction, but with some of the same flavors. While Vulcan Energy and its partners look to solve one challenge of a low-carbon future in terms of how we get around, there are others trying to figure out what a low-carbon home is going to look like and how quickly it's possible to get us there. And when you hear terms like green buildings, it's quite easy to go straight to edgy skyscrapers with sophisticated motion-activated LED lights, electromagnetic elevators, and solar-powered snack fridges which is forgivable because it can seem like you spend an inordinate amount of time at work in worky buildings, at least before COVID flipped all of that upside down. But we spend an awful lot of time in our homes, trying to stay warm, trying to stay cool, cooking, recording podcasts, or just some very basic Netflix and chill. To help straighten things out for me, I called up Mark Pasuda out of our London office, who also happens to be making his debut on the show. As Mark tells it, the ubiquity of homes is not something that has escaped the notice of regulators. Buildings account for about 40% of the world's carbon emissions, and the residential sector is responsible for about 20% of all energy-related carbon emissions globally. So that's related to the heating, cooling, and powering of our homes. And this is important in the context of reaching the targets of the Paris Agreement, of having 80% emissions reductions by 2050. Um, and there are some scenarios that demonstrate that decarbonizing the electricity grid alone is not enough to meet that target. So in order for homes and the residential sector to uh, help meet that target, there has to be more broad portfolio of low carbon and zero emissions uh, technologies and solutions. 
in the UK in uh, in June of, of this year, they introduced new regulations known as the Future Home Standard. And the aim of that of those regulations is for all new homes to reduce emissions by about one third compared to the previous building standards, uh, and by 2025 to reduce emissions by up to 80%. This also applies to not just to new homes, but also to existing homes that are planning major renovations, upgrades, or extensions. And the the future home standard will be accomplished through a combination of um, many factors, such as uh, improving the thermal performance of the building fabric and and building materials. So things like better insulation, better windows, improved air tightness standards, and appropriately sized windows to limit both overheating in summer and heat loss in winter. Also improving the energy efficiency of the building services, so things like mechanical and electrical systems. And there's also a prospective ban on gas boilers starting in 2025. Uh, The idea being that new homes will have to replace gas boilers with low-carbon heating systems like heat pumps. Um, And there's other other requirements around things like ventilation systems and also to have charging points for electric vehicles. Right, so the UK's future home standard is a big move. One that's looking to tackle the contribution of residential properties to climate change, or to be clear, to the mitigation of climate change. Compared with earlier regulations, new homes will have to reduce emissions by 80% as soon as 2025. And as Mark was talking, I was envisioning houses with thick walls, tiny windows with 10-inch plexiglass, and forensic-level LED lights that leave no spot unlit or soothed. But Mark also pointed out that these new standards are not just about emissions and energy, but also comfort. There's the basic thermal comfort which comes from a house that stays cool in summer and warm in winter, but also things like better ventilation and filtering that would see fewer airborne pathogens making it into your lounge. And they'll also be cheaper to run with lower energy costs in particular. But the pull of green buildings, both in terms of improved user experience and lower running costs, hasn't moved the needle all that quickly. As Mark tells it, The pull is going to need a lot more push from regulators if real estate is going to make a significant contribution to a low-carbon future. And the UK's firm stance might just be the first of many. There are lots of voluntary green building and energy performance standards um, for not just residential buildings, but also commercial and institutional buildings. So uh, people might be familiar with green building standards like LEED or BREAM or Energy Star. Um, Now, the problem with this is that they are largely voluntary. Uh, and they haven't really been adopted at nearly the scale that's required for the deep carbon reductions that, that countries need in order to meet their carbon commitments. China, in April of this year, uh, they introduced their first national standards for energy performance and carbon emissions for new buildings, including residential buildings. And they are enforcing the disclosure of energy consumption and carbon emissions. China's new legislation requires that residential buildings um, have an energy savings of about 75% for the the buildings in extremely cold climates. And in the other climate zones, they will need to have an energy savings of 65%. And that's compared to the energy performance of a typical house uh, built in 1980. There are other jurisdictions as well, which have had green building uh, uh, standards. So California and the US, they introduced the first statewide green building code in 2010. It's called the California Green Building Standards Code, also called CalGreen. 
a comprehensive green building uh, statewide requirement. And then there are other cities around the world that have introduced green building standards related to energy and carbon performance. So in Toronto, Canada, uh, they have the Toronto Green Standard, uh, which aims to uh, achieve net zero by 2040 for all new buildings. But this does not apply to single dwelling homes. Similarly, in New York City, they have a local law 97, which limits the carbon emissions of existing buildings, but this is limited just to large buildings. So again, it's not not applicable to uh, single dwelling homes. Right. So this regulatory ratcheting is starting to pick up steam. And understandably, investors and companies alike will be trying to figure out the cost of these changes. In some cities like New York, some may be weighing these costs against fines for non-compliance. In Toronto, companies may be looking strategically at the value of rebates for meeting standards that exceed mandatory minimum green building requirements. We could also see a mixed carrot and stick approach as well. The recently passed Inflation Reduction Act is adding incentives that will effectively bring down the cost of things like heat pumps, solar panels, and more efficient ventilation systems. But whatever the combination of incentives or disincentives, meeting these new regulations is not just going to be a question of cost. Sourcing new materials and products and constructing new types of houses and buildings is going to need process overhauls, something that will create new challenges for quality control and reporting. It's going to require that home builders um, use new types of building materials, uh, implement new testing and construction methods, and adopt new products as they're brought to market. So these home builders would really benefit from having uh, robust product quality management practices in place throughout their operations. So that includes with their suppliers and also with their uh, product marketing, advertising, and sales to homeowners, um, because they're going to have to make promises about the uh, energy performance of buildings, um, and they need to be able to advertise that in a way that is not greenwashing, um, and and that they can uh, that they can deliver on on the quality and the performance that they um, that they say they will. There are some companies, uh, some home builders in the UK, which have anticipated these changes. Um, so companies like Barrett Developments or Persimmon, they've actually developed low carbon or net zero demonstration homes. They've partnered with industry and other academic partners to try out new technologies and automation systems and are monitoring in-use performance under real-world conditions of these net zero uh, buildings. And so what these projects have demonstrated is that it's it's technically feasible using uh, existing technology and, and building products to, to meet the future home standard requirements. However, there are some other companies which have expressed doubts about the viability of meeting these requirements based purely on um, the timescales and the existing training and supply chain availability. Um, so these, these companies have said that there just simply isn't enough resources to train the, the people in the home building trades fast enough in order to meet these requirements. And they're also seeing limitations within global supply chains to, to deliver um, the, the products and materials that are necessary. Right, so this new marker, put down by the UK government, and specifically the Department for Leveling Up, Housing and Communities, is seeing some home builders more prepared than others. In Mark's research, he found that some companies had disclosed future emission reduction targets, but that these fell short of the future home standard. So at some point, that circle will need to be squared. Even for those companies that have developed conceptual approaches, scaling their solutions will present its own basket of challenges starting with sourcing the new materials that are needed to build these next-generation homes. But maybe most importantly, the future home standard, just like most newly minted green building standards, requires specific, 
quantitative performance, not only in emissions, but also things like air quality inside the building. It remains to be seen how exactly these changes are going to be enforced, but if a credible system for verifying the standards of these future homes can back up the rollout of these new regulations, it could create more headaches for companies that can't keep a handle on quality standards, as risks emerge all the way from upstream suppliers down to final construction. Seeing the UK pushing the envelope on green standards for residential real estate shouldn't actually be all that surprising, right? When incentives and voluntary efforts aren't pulling down emissions quickly enough, then industries are going to bump against the sharp edges of regulations. And the more stringent these regulations, the more we'll see industries breaking apart. Gaps opening up between homebuilding companies that anticipated these changes and took action, and those that adopted a more kick-the-can-down-the-road approach. And homebuilding companies will be looking up their supply chains for new technologies and materials as they try to build low-carbon homes of the future. And these homebuilders will be in good company. Auto manufacturers will be scrambling to roll out solutions for low-carbon transport as well, and hunting down key components in their own supply chain. And if we trace this particular supply chain right to its starting point, we'll bump into lithium miners, like Vulcan Energy. Companies that could potentially benefit from a new and surging demand for new energy metals. But it might not all be upside. What we can take from the many eyes watching the Upper Rhine Valley and its geothermal brine is that the finer print of low-carbon solutions is always worth scrutinizing. For Vulcan Energy, the lure of this anticipated zero-carbon lithium will need to be weighed against the potential environmental or social impacts of their project. Their capacity to navigate a complex social context might be nearly as important as the tech savvy they'll need if they want to turn the Upper Rhine Valley into a prized source of lithium in a world hungry for batteries. And that is it for the week. A massive thanks to both Kuldeep and Mark for their take on the news with an ESG twist. It was great to host them on the show for the first time, but certainly not the last. Thank you very much for tuning in, whether it's your first episode or you've got that salty, weathered vibe of a long-time listener. If you are enjoying what we're putting out there, drop us some stars on your platform of choice and let us know if there's anything you'd like to hear more about. But for now, I'll let you get back to your cup of coffee your daily commute, or whatever provides the perfect backdrop to the world of ESG. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to, nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.